New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Rebecca Solnit. She's an author, historian, and activist, and the author of many books, including the lyrical memoir, The Far Away Nearby. Rebecca, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. I know in the book, The Far Away Nearby, there's a, a section that you refer to, you're talking about the life of Che Guevara. And he, surprisingly enough, toured around and followed communities of lepers. So tell me, thinking about leprosy and writing about that, how was that and how is that useful to you? You know, the way that it arose is that my awful ex-boyfriend of the time and I were driving home a very old woman from a political event, and the movie The Motorcycle Diaries had just come out about Che Guevara and his friend Alberto Granado traveling by motorcycle around South America. And uh, the boyfriend and the older woman were talking about this, and she had actually known Che Guevara, which was this amazing thing. Who knew that I'd... You know, you think of him as being in some remote, romantic, distant, unreachable past, and here was somebody in the passenger seat who'd known him. And they were talking about the Motorcycle Diaries film, and what the film doesn't represent adequately is that they were not just on a Dharma bums road trip, that they were young medical professionals, a doctor and a doctor in training, going from leprosy center to leprosy center. Granado was already a specialist in treating leprosy, and Guevara was considering devoting his life as a doctor to it, although, of course, as we know, he would have a very different life. And the boyfriend told us that the disease of leprosy is not what causes all that damage, the loss of fingers and toes and things like that. What happens is that it kills your nerves, and then you lose your feeling, and what you can't feel, you can't take care of. And something about that was so revelatory for me, the idea that numbness is a terrible disaster that prevents you from being able to take care of things. And it seemed like a great allegory waiting to be explored. Because we in this country so often fear and loathe discomfort and difficulty and pain and things like that. But those are often forces that bring us in touch with what's really going on. We seek the anesthetic, which means that we're withdrawing from the suffering of others, from our own suffering, often from reality in some profound ways. And, uh, you know, and Che's adventures among the people with leprosy of South America was remarkable because it was about not being numb, about reaching out in empathy, which is the opposite of numbness, to feel for them and with them and work with them and try to give them respect and acknowledge their humanity and their fellowship. And they were very moved by these people who didn't treat them as untouchables and were very warm and generous, played soccer and hugged them and shook their hands and things like that. And really seeing the sufferings of the poor and the marginal is what gave Che his political awakening, which made him decide 
not to treat individual patients with the diseases they had, but to treat economic injustice and cruelty itself as a disease he would cure through revolution. It's what made him a revolutionary. But this idea of numbness was fascinating to me. Uh, what you can't feel, you can't take care of. And with people with leprosy, it happens, you know, you can't feel anything in your hand, so you pick up something red hot and burn your hand. Then you don't feel that it's injured and you make the injury worse. You hold a cigarette till it burns down to burn your fingers. You wear your shoes until they uh, wear a hole in your skin. And then again, you don't treat the wound. And so they get susceptible to infections because of the disease, but they get all these injuries through lack of feeling. And the sense that you injure what you can't feel just seemed profound to me. And it became a way to explore empathy, which is how you feel what you don't literally feel. You know, like if I bang my thumb with a hammer, I feel it literally. But if you bang your thumb with a hammer, empathy is why I feel for you, as we say. The word empathy literally means feeling into and I was interested in empathy as this force that allows us to feel what we don't literally feel, to extend our boundaries beyond ourselves, to fellow feeling with other human beings or with non-human beings, with animals, with nature itself, with the world as a whole. And then I think part of the book is about how do we inculcate this feeling? How do we cultivate it? How do we flee from it? Because feeling pain is so scary and demanding and puts enormous burdens on us. You know, if we feel for this homeless person, if we feel for the poor, if we feel for the people we're bombing with the weapons paid for by our tax dollars, how do we feel? What do we feel if we see everything as connected and that's sometimes so much that people seek out disconnection. I remember Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, the writer and adventurer, talking about being in a prisoner of war camp in Java during World War II. And some of his fellow prisoners were being killed by the Japanese in just terrible ways, you know, plain bayonet practice or something. He was describing that. And I remember him saying, when they had all the prisoners lined up to, to witness this. And I remember him saying, I wanted to look away. I didn't want to see this terrible death and destruction. But I forced myself to be witness to it. I couldn't change it, but I could. The power of being witness is what I could do. And I always remembered that and in, in, in this time of mass distraction from witnessing these sorts of things going on, we want to turn away. Well, we also have a host of stories of why we don't have to have empathy with people, people who are not our race or gender or or nationality or religion or whatever. And you see people explaining why this woman was asking for it when she got raped, why it was Trayvon Martin's fault that he was murdered, why it's poor people's fault that their children are hungry, etc. We come up with all these terrible stories that cut off our feeling from extending to the empathy that these people otherwise would demand of us, which this empathy that may demand action. You know, and it's not that empathy alone is always so great. It's what we do because of empathy, but empathy is where it begins. Your story about Lawrence van der Post, that amazing writer, though, reminds me of something extraordinary I heard that's part of my book, A Paradise Built in Hell, a Morgan Stanley Dean Witter executive who was fleeing the World Trade Center as it was collapsing, 
and he got to a safe distance and started seeing the jumpers, the people who were above the impact area where there was no way out. And so they were jumping to escape the flames and falling those, you know, almost hundred stories. And he was mentally holding hands with the jumpers as they fell. And it was such an extraordinary thing, this man in this moment where you're stripped naked of all the baggage we often carry. This is not how we usually think of finance executives mm-hmm. in major corporations. But he was actually quite a wonderful man. I forget his first name. His last name actually was Noble. And oh. um, and he was just, he was like, what can I do for people jumping out of windows and falling to their deaths? And he was trying imaginatively to hold hands with them. And so as a kind of bearing witness in the hopes you know, that you could do something for them that was quite extraordinary in that moment and quite self-forgetful. And I found other kinds of just profound solidarity in that disaster and other disasters where people get stripped away of all these stories and there's a kind of deep empathy of why they act in solidarity even when it risks their life or in some case they lose their lives. The empathy people experience in that incredibly unpredictable, unforeseen, chaotic moment reminds me of an even more extraordinary story of a young man who was an athlete in college. As he said in the oral history he told to Columbia, he was evacuating the collapsing towers, which by that point looked like they would destroy anyone caught in the cloud of dust and debris. So he was running with his co-workers and not the people he loved most in the world, not his family, not his friends, just his co-workers. And totally unselfconsciously, in this interview done soon afterwards, he said, well, I was an athlete in college, so I was a little faster than everyone else, so I slowed down. And he didn't know what he was saying. His death was approaching, but my sense of solidarity was more more powerful than my sense of self-preservation. So I slowed down as death approached to be with these other people I knew. But that's so much who people often are in disaster, so little of what we've been told. And that's what my book, A Paradise Built in Hell, is about. And it really raised these big questions about what does empathy mean? What is it? How does it arise from our stories? And how does sometimes just reality sweep all stories aside? And that very much made The Far Away Nearby the next book I needed to write to explore this question of empathy even more deeply. I'm just reminded somehow as you're speaking of that picture that went around the world of that young Chinese man standing in Tiananmen Square in front of the tanks and the tanks kind of, the tank kind of shifting its position away from him. The power of that image is almost as powerful as the image of being out in space and looking back at the Earth as a whole globe. Yeah, well, there's so many images like that that I can think of. You know, we have images of incredible cruelty, the Abu Ghraib photographs, which really have had huge impact. They're part of why a lot of people in the Muslim world are furious and scornful towards the U.S. And it's interesting how much that war was fought through censorship in the U.S. of trying to hide images of dismembered children and all the collateral damage of the torture of prisoners and things like that, of bodies coming back in coffins. 
And I think the anti-war movement, part of their job, our job, was to make visible what was kept invisible, because once it's visible, people may feel empathy with it. They may recognize the humanity of what otherwise is just an abstraction, a number, uh, etc. So there's always this sort of battle of visibility and story around mm -hmm. these political mm -hmm. things, whether it's domestic violence or drones or, you know, Black Lives Matter, police murders. And things like that. I think the Eric Garner incident where a policeman strangled to death a really lovely man, by all accounts, whose only crime was selling cigarettes. And to hear him say 13 times, I can't breathe, was so horrendous. Although, of course, you can still read people who refuse empathy and explain why it was really his fault. Right. And, uh, you know, people armor themselves in all kinds of ways. And I think at some level it's because empathy demands practically and emotionally so much of us. And some people find the burden unbearable or have just been inculcated to believe that they don't have to. Those are not my people. It's their fault. It's not my job. Those are not my people. That reminds me of just in the last couple of days I received an email that was offering a really sounded like just an incredible guided trip to Iran. And I just thought, wow, to go to Iran, to see for myself, to not have it go through some other filter. So I clicked on the website, and, and then I found the trip was sold out. And somehow it made my heart really glad that enough people had the wherewithal and the time to be able to travel to this country, to see for themselves. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting how that desegregation, that's that sort of citizen diplomacy can really change things, how much war and stuff depends on dehumanization. And you were talking about World War II and the way that we dehumanize the Japanese and then the Vietnamese and things, and particularly non-white people, you know, Muslims now as Islamo-fundamentalists, Islamo-fascists, etc., get really dehumanized as though all these people, this huge, rich, complex culture of women and children and men and great-grandparents and storytellers and nurses and teachers can be turned into this cartoon. That's why propaganda, another kind of storytelling, helps people shut down and stop feeling is such an important tool of war of, you know, these people are not us, they're not like us, we can hate them. And I think so much of discrimination and racism comes partly from believing people are a simple homogenous category and one that you can collectively punish. And you see these horrible men who hate women, whatever it means to hate 51% of the human population, and think they can revenge themselves because of what one woman did by attacking another woman. And the same thing with a person of color, a Muslim, etc. This belief in collective punishment that believes in a homogenous category of mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the result of, in a way, bad storytelling. And, you know, mm -hmm. you fight stories with stories and you fight bad stories with good stories. I think the job of a storyteller is to tell these stories that make people real, that wake up empathy, that make us see how everything is connected to everything else. And that can be the work of a great war correspondent or investigative journalist 
or a poet or a writer of fairy tales. So it's important, the stories we're listening to and the stories that we're telling. Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. These are the kind of conversations I always want to have, so the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rebecca Solnit. She's an author, historian, and activist, and her many books include The Far Away Nearby, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, An Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness. Men explain things to me. So you might want to check them out. You can go to her website and find her blogs and many essays. RebeccaSolnit.net, and Solnit is spelled S-O-L-N-I-T, RebeccaSolnit.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe. Please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.